Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know not the law, or who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, Proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, 
but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thank you, Pastor Kent, for helping me in that regard this morning. And thank you for reading along with us uh, together. We began studying uh, this chapter uh, several weeks ago. I would encourage you, if you'd like to... Uh, go through and, and find out the, the overview that we did on chapter number seven. I would encourage you to do that. It would make even more sense than uh, a reading and the dividing up of the text before us today. Uh, so I would encourage you to do that, but we've already begun uh, chapter seven by way of overview. Today we're going to try to get through the first two sections and maybe treat the third section and final section the next time we're together. It's an important, important, important passage. It's actually directly tied to chapter number six. Chapter number six and chapter number seven are all about how does a Christian grow to become more Christ-like after they come to know Jesus. I'll simplify it. All those verses that Pastor Hobie just read can come across very complex at first reading. We're gonna simplify it for you, for sure, but I'm gonna back up in a greater context for those of you who are newer to Christ and maybe guests this morning, chapter six and seven are all about how do we spiritually grow after we know Jesus. Chapter number six teaches us growth in a positive way. Chapter number seven teaches us growth, growth in a negative way. Positively speaking, when we are born again, when we come to know Christ as our savior, there's a three-step positive way that we grow in chapter six. Just know as much of the Bible as you can. <laughs> That's really what Paul's saying in the first few verses of chapter number six. Just know doctrine, know teaching, know the Bible. The more you know about the Bible, verse 11 says, then you're able to consider its truth in your heart. Right? Know, the, know doctrine. The Christian that's going to increasingly grow must gradually understand the word of God. They must consider it in their heart. And then the rest of the chapter of, of number six after verse 11 is all about you taking volitional ownership in your mind to do the word of God in your daily living. Right? And the apostle Paul uses the metaphor of a master and a servant in the latter part of chapter six. Right? Now the Lord is master over our hearts and we're no longer masters or slaves to sin, excuse me, but we are servants to righteousness. We're servants to righteousness. So positive, uh, positive growth chapter six. Learn, consider, do. Chapter seven, we're gonna find out how you don't grow. You need to know how not to grow in order to know how to grow, right? So when you bring your children home from the hospital, or uh, maybe you fed them properly when they came home from the hospital, but they're um, living by unhealthy rules of eating when they're five, six, seven years old, and they're developing poor habits, and it's affecting their bodies, even at that age. We know that we're, there's something that we should not be doing. So you go to your pediatrician, and the pediatrician looks at the uh, their body and then does some tests and, and they ask, what are you feeding this kid? Right. This is not a healthy child. They're going to say, you need to stop doing this. Stop living by this standard. 
and then start doing this. Right? So chapter seven is all about when you are in Christ Jesus, you no longer live according to a certain standard. Because if you're going to live by a certain standard outside the standard of which Christ has established in your heart, you're going to become an incredibly unhealthy Christian. Sin will layer itself upon itself in your life. So chapter seven is what do we have to stop in order to gain healthy ground in a spiritual way? Simple enough? All right, chapter number six. There's something that we died to. The text of chapter six says that we died to sin. When we trusted Christ as our savior, we became dead to sin. In chapter number seven, there's a second thing that we died to. We died to the law. We died to the law. The law, for those of you who are newer to Christ, or guests this morning, the law primarily is in reference in chapter seven to the law of Moses. So this would have been the first five books of the Old Testament. Right? Particularly beginning in Exodus chapter 19. The law of Moses. The Pentateuch, it's called. The first five books of the Bible are books that Moses wrote. So in chapter number eight, Paul is saying, after you come to know Jesus as your savior, those first five books, they're all part of God's word, but they take on a different relationship for you. Especially Exodus 19 through the end of Deuteronomy. And we're gonna find out what that influence is on your life now, even though you have died to it. In other words, we don't, we don't live any longer by the influence or under the influence of Mosaic law. We'll find out from this passage that the Mosaic law has a complete inability to do two things. It has the inability to save you, so therefore it has the inability to spiritually change you after you come to know Jesus as your savior. Right? So then you say, well then why in the passage is it called holy and good? and righteous, and spiritual. Why are those adjectives added to that which is the law of Moses if it can't do those two things? Because we're going to find out what it does do that's very necessary for us in order to bring us to Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be overly complex here. I'm trying to be as simple as I can, but I know even in my simplicity, I can sound very complex. <laughs> So I'll summarize it even from an eagle's view then. Doing good works doesn't save you. So since doing good works, even if they're religious good works, can't save you, then those same good works can't grow you spiritually. Can I be that simple? The law of Moses were external rules given to the nation of Israel to prove one and one thing only to them, that they could not keep them. To prove to them that they were sinners. That's, the, that's why the law is called spiritual righteous good. Right? It does have a very necessary purpose in our life. It's to show us that we're imperfect. And everyone here would agree that we are imperfect. Amen. Right? And so, what does it do? It takes us from focusing on ourselves and what we can do 
shows us that we're completely unable to save, let alone grow ourselves, and it's to direct our eyes to the person of Jesus Christ who came to earth, who perfectly kept the law, led a sinless life, died an effectual death, right, was buried, rose again, claiming victory over the influence and the consequences of sin, which is death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is coming again. It's to take our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes exclusively on him for our salvation and for our spiritual growth. So, Romans chapter 7. If Romans 6 is how to grow, Romans 7 is how not to grow. And why would the Apostle Paul determine to give this wealth of information to a church that was primarily doing a really, really good job in their spiritual growth? As we've stated multiple times before since we started Romans, there's not one criticism that the Apostle Paul levels against this church. This church is not perfect, but they're doing generally a pretty good job. I think this is a good reminder for Grace Church of Venner because I think you are a really, really, really cool group of people. I think you generally really want to be spirit-governed. I think you really love the word, love each other, right? Love the Lord, love lost souls. Generally speaking, I love our church for all that you do and your love for the Lord. But why would this reminder be given to us? Because it will always remain because we're still fallen creatures saved by grace, it will always remain our tendency, are you you with me? It's early on in the sermon, so I'm certain you are. And it's it's not really hot in here, no one's sweating yet, right? It's really incredibly and vitally important that we always know that we can never We can never evaluate someone's spiritual growth by external means. We can never really know how spiritual someone is by how they dot their religious I's and cross their religious T's. That's what we can see. But that's not what God sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. After we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a heart, chapter six, that wants to know a little bit more of the Bible as we go along. It wants to consider it in our heart. It wants to do it. But the tendency will always remain in us to fall prey to the influence of the law again in our hearts and in our lives. And the Apostle Paul uses very clear language here is we just can't let that happen. Let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul's always saying here the easiest way out to help each other grow is by using the law. That's the easy way out. Here's a handwritten set of standards and rules that you do and you can call yourself a Christian and a churchgoer. 
even if you don't go to church, just do this set of rules and standards, and your religious leaders will check you by those rules and standards to see how you're doing. And if you're doing them, you must be okay. You must be spiritual. And the reality is, that's what Paul is saying we don't do. Don't measure people by mere external standards. We're gonna find out how we do measure spiritual growth within the context of chapter seven, but we know it's never, ever, ever by the law. That's the easy way out. What's the blood, sweat, and tears of true Christian ministry? When someone comes to know the Lord as their savior, the Bible calls them a spiritual baby, right? How much attention do babies need? A lot. How often do they need it? All the time. You said all the time, right? So that means sometimes there's no sleep. Sometimes that means most of the time we live our lives with no money. We live our lives with no energy because we're fully vested in making sure that little one is healthy and happy. When people come to know Christ as their savior, they're called little ones. My little ones, my little children, my infants. How much time does it take to tend to a spiritual infant, the same amount of time it takes to tend to a biological infant. That's the hard way, but it's the necessary way. And it's the most glorious way, isn't it? Any one of us that have had the opportunity to care for children in a babysitting mode or in a parental mode, know that there's difficulty but there's much more glory than difficulty, right? Spiritual growth is exactly that. It will always be a glory, it will always be an agony, but the beauty in the whole thing is when we truly know Jesus Christ, the more we know of the word, the more we consider in our hearts, and the more we do it, the more that the person we're shepherding becomes like in their character and disposition, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on a gradual basis. And that can only be a miracle of God's grace. Only God's grace can do that. The law cannot do that. Now, that's a bird's eye view. We're kind of coming down more and more to the context here of Romans 7 that Pastor Kent read through that we overviewed three weeks ago. Let me remind you of the outline of this chapter, and then we'll dive into it for the remainder of time that we have this morning, okay? First of all, verses 1 to 6. Verses one to six. This is what we called the position of the law in our lives. The position of the law in our lives. Secondly, in verses seven to 13, if you're note takers, verses seven to 13, this is the purpose of the law in our lives. The position of the law, verses one to six. The purpose of the law, verses seven to 13. And then finally, number three, we stated that there's a precaution. There's a precaution about the law in our lives. The position, the purpose, and the precaution. So let's go back up to our first point this morning, 
the position of the law in our lives. I had Pastor Hobie read through this text on purpose before we began this morning so I would not have to take time to go back and reread it again so I can summarize for you expositionally that which we've already read and meditated on together. In the first six verses in chapter number seven, Paul does what he did in the first six verses of chapter number six. He asks a question and he gives a statement. He teaches us in chapter six we're dead to sin. He teaches us in chapter seven that we're dead to the law. In chapter number seven, he uses an illustration to teach us why we're dead to the law. He uses the illustration of marriage in verses one to six. Now, for those of you that know your Bibles well, and for those of you that may not, that's okay. This is not six verses teaching us about marriage, okay? We don't want to go to this text primarily to tell us what's right and wrong with divorce and remarriage. The only ways in Paul's using these six verses here is to teach us a principle about our relationship to the law. When a man is united to a woman in marriage, it's done so by law. When I officiate a wedding, right? That couple knows they have to go to the Lake County Courthouse, they have to register, they have to get a marriage license, and they have to bring it to the wedding, and I have to sign it after the wedding, and they have to return that by mail or in person to the courthouse, and their marriage is recognized by human law that they're now a couple, right? By law, There's some requirements, even in our culture, as to how someone gets married. When one of those spouses dies, they're free from the law that allowed them to be married. Does that make sense? In other words, if a spouse dies, the law that brought them to be married, the do's and don'ts that brought them to be married, for that couple is now obsolete because one of them's dead. So that law has to start all over for the next time they're going to be married because death of the spouse has freed them for the opportunity to be married by law again. So the purpose for the use of this illustration is simply this. When we die to sin, chapter six, we also simultaneously died to the law, chapter seven. So, if I die, Rhonda's free. If I'm dead, what type of ownership or partnership do I have with her anymore? It's over, right? I mean, hopefully she'll miss me a little bit, you know, and and hopefully there'll be some little pain, you know, you know. But there's nothing that this dead body can do to sit up in a casket and say, hey, don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do this. I love you. I'll love you forever. Don't ever forget about me. Blah, blah, blah. I'm dead. It's just a body. It's not even me. It's just a body. So, So there's no authority anymore. There's no even human law that dictates how we govern. She's on her own. She's on her own. 
Maybe sooner than later, I got a 16 and a half hour flight over water tomorrow. So who knows, you know? Maybe she'll be free tomorrow. I hope not. I hope not. I like her too much, and I love my kids too much, and I love you guys too much. So I'm going to pray that somehow I can sleep for 16 and a half straight hours. Ain't going to happen. Seth's like, no, ain't going to happen. I'm riding coach at six foot five. So I digress too much. If I'm gone, she's free. That's the point. And that's the point for us spiritually here. The Mosaic law has zilcho influence on us when we die to sin because we've made a lie in Christ. It's absolutely, hang on with me here, because I want to be very, very careful understanding Hebrews 4.12 and so forth we'll look at later. There is part of the word of God that has only principal influence on our lives after we're born again. It no longer has mandate influence on our lives anymore. It's still the word of God. It's still necessary. Principally, it still influences us with the help of the Spirit, but it cannot save us, and since it cannot save us, it cannot grow us. We are dead to it. We don't have one thread of our being that has an impulse to live under it anymore or to evaluate anyone by it. Okay? So in order to avoid saying the same thing four different ways, and to be clear, I think that, that, is, that is the position that the law has in our lives. And what position does it have? None. None. Okay? There's no one here that would say, you'll be saved if you live by these rules. And there is no one that would say, you'll grow in Christ after you're saved if you live by these rules. The law has no influence upon us anymore. Right? The text is very clear here in verses one to six. In verses four and five, Pastor Hobie read, we have died to the law. We have died to the law. Very, very clear. But since we've died to the law, flip over a page or two in your Bible to Romans eight. Let's look at verse four of Romans eight. Just to be clear. All right. Romans 8 and verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the what? Spirit. So while the law has no influence to change us or to grow us spiritually, when we are born again, we're no longer living to the law, which only exacerbates the darkness of our flesh more and more. Now we've been made alive in Jesus Christ, and we live by the Spirit. Hold your fingers to Romans 7 and go over to Galatians 6 for me. Together, okay? Galatians chapter 6. This is just one time a particular phrase that's used in the New Testament that helps us practically apply, where do we go after we're saved? If the law of Moses can't save us and it can't grow us, it's only to show us how sinful we are so we know Jesus, then where do we go after we're saved? 
one practical way the Apostle Paul shows this, and I picked Galatians 6 because Galatians is all about how the law can't save you or grow you, very similar to Romans, only he writes it to a church that was struggling, Rome wasn't struggling. Brethren, verse 1, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are a spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the what? Law of Christ. The law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another for each one will bear his own load. The law of Christ. God has never designed humans that he's created to live without law. Even when Adam and Eve were created and they had not sinned yet, they're in the state of perfection, did the Lord give them standards by which they had to live in the garden? Man has always been under law. Law is necessary. The Mosaic law can't save and it can't grow, but after we come to know Christ as our Savior, we are placed under the law of Christ. And what does that mean? The law of Christ is everything that the New Testament says that we are to be by way of moral and spiritual virtue. So you say, well, you said the, the, the law, the Mosaic law was dead, every part of it. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. Yes, it is. It's dead. But does, you think about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right? Most of you know what those are. That's what we would call the moral law of God. But you said, Pastor Tim, we're dead to that. We are. But what does the New Testament do about worshiping God and having no other gods before me? What does the New Testament do about teaching us to obey and honor our parents? What does the New Testament talk, say about murder? The only part of the moral part of the Decalogue that really is more ceremonial than it is moral is the Sabbath day, right? What does the New Testament say about coveting? Thou shalt not covet. What does it say about stealing? You see what I'm saying? The law of Christ, we're always under a law, but now the law that we're under, the law of Christ, we're able to pursue because of his grace, not the influence of law. Law didn't start it, law can't maintain it. The grace of God started it in salvation, so only the grace of God can maintain it, amen? amen. It's apart from man and apart from religious standard, it's an inner work of the Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts. That's why shepherding each other is so important. According to the word of God, by the spirit of God, Romans 8, 4, Back up, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. We saw Galatians 6, 1 and 2, and now we, we see a list of things here that are very, very clear that we are to live by and things that we are not to live by. This is all really the law of Christ that you're, that you're familiar with. We know the, the deeds of the flesh are evident, verse 19. Wow. 
Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, that's just a fancy word for partying, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things make it a lifestyle probably never knew Christ in the first place. That's what the last part of that verse is saying. But, very clear but, here's the law of Christ, by the Spirit. You can cross-reference here Romans 8.4. Living by the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no what? Law. You see, the law of Moses is limited. It's not salvifically influential, so it cannot be influential in our sanctification. It's limited. The law of Christ has no limits to it. Amen. Law has limits. Grace has no limits. So what's that saying? Well, our mission statement is this as a church, for those of you who are newer. Grace Church of Better exists to glorify God by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of what? Christ-likeness. If we were under the law of Moses, that goal of Christ-likeness would be unachievable, but let's say that it wasn't. We would have certain rules and standards, about 1,603 of them or whatever the number is, right, in the Mosaic Code. I'm sure that all of you could memorize those. The Apostle Paul had them all memorized. If you're gonna be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, you had to memorize the whole Pentateuch, word for word, first five books of the Bible. He had it down. He would say Philippians 3, right? 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 1. I obeyed every one of them. What are you gonna do with a guy like that? You don't need a savior, you're your own savior. So I could say, if you knew Christ, you just obey the Mosaic law. You only had 1,600 and some laws. You do it, you're good. You're good. But that's not the way it is. When you live under the law of Christ by grace, our growth in Christ like this will always be gradual and continual until we see him face to face. All right. And we just know what it looks like in character, right? in content. And we all are just trying to pursue that as simply and gradually as we, can, as we can. So we have died to the law of Moses, but we have not died. We've been made alive by the Spirit unto newness of life. And newness of life in Christ is the law of Christ. That's what governs our hearts as believers. That's why I love uh, James 1.25, as I've shared with you before. Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty... He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The apostle James writes to people who are primarily Jewish in the book of James, and he calls the Bible, revealed truth, the law of liberty. The law of liberty in that context is not the law of Moses. He's saying if you're going to live under the law of Christ, you're going to want to know this book, chapter 6, consider it in your heart, and try to do it gradually as much as you can as time goes on and you'll be blessed in your deed. Blessed of God, for sure, which also translates the practical blessing for us. So, the position of law in our lives. We have died to it. He's given us a very clear illustration of what that means. And we have been delivered from the law. We've died to it, and we, verse six, we have been delivered from it, right? The one who has taught the word, excuse me, go back to Romans chapter seven, all right? Verse six, 
But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit. Again, Romans 8, 4, and not in the oldness of the letter, which is a synonym for the Mosaic law. So that's the position of law in our lives. Let's move on here for our last few minutes to the purpose of the law in our lives in verses 7 to 13. And let me identify for you several purposes of the law, and we'll go back and, and as efficiently as we can explain them. All right, this is verses 7 to 13. So in verse 7, the law identifies sin. The law helps us understand what sin is. Verses 8 and 9, the law excites sin. One author says it arouses sin in our lives. It defines it, identifies it, it excites it. And then the law kills. As Pastor Kent read earlier in verses 10 and 11, the law is lethal. It indicts everyone underneath the death sentence. No life imprisonment, right? You're gonna get the death penalty. The law is the death penalty for every person that's ever lived. It kills. In verses 12 and 13, it reveals the darkness of sin. The utter, you could put down the utter darkness of sin. What Paul calls the sinfulness of sin. It identifies sin, it excites sin, it kills, and it reveals the utter sinfulness of sin or the darkness of sin. I find it really interesting, my own tendencies to sin when I'm given a human law. If I'm walking in a park and I come upon a park bench that's recently been painted and it has a sign on it, do not touch, what, does my, what do I want to do? I want to touch that puppy to see if it's, if it's dry yet. I'm not going to wait, wait for that park manager to come around and take it off because he might not know it's dry already and if it's dry, I want to sit. I want to pull that, pup, that, that, that thing off and I want to sit down. I want it to find if it's dry or not. You want to touch it. Um, I can remember going to the Cleveland Art Museum with Rhonda for a date one night. Had a couple pictures with, um, you know, posts and, and ropes to keep, to keep kids out. <laughs> right? 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 Don't, please don't touch the painting. What does your heart want to do? Why? Right, it's just what we are in our fallen. You know, when you see speed limit 60, well, you know, what is it really going to take to get me pulled over, right? Right? I remember having several lawns that I mowed when I was in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. And every homeowner would tell me exactly how they wanted that lawn mowed and how they wanted it trimmed. One particular homeowner wanted me to do a different angle on the lines every week, four weeks a month, because he believed that, that, that the, gro the grass would grow more healthy if it was mowed at different ways every week. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a lawn guy. I just did it, right? But I tell you, when he told me, this week I want you to mow it on an angle, this way, I was like, it's gonna take me longer. 
and you ain't paying me anymore. <laughs> but I'm not the boss. That was his law. I didn't want to do it. You come up with your own illustration, right? When we talk about the purpose of the law in our lives, it is really to identify innately that we have a sin issue. Right? We do. It identifies sin. Verse 7 tells us that very clearly. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So after he uses that opening illustration, the Romans could very easily say, well, is the law bad? Well, of course not. No, it's got a purpose. It's got a ministry in our lives. And Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting in the law had the law not said, thou shalt not covet. Isn't that very interesting? I, I find it amazing here that the Apostle Paul didn't talk about murder. He didn't talk about stealing. He didn't talk about an outburst of anger to your parent. Those are all visual. Man can see that. He goes right to the heart. And the last commandment of the ten, thou shalt not covet. Everybody covets. I find it interesting. If you want to write here off to next to verse 7, a cross-reference of Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, what's the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper, actually do with the rich young ruler? Without even mentioning the law, he tells the rich young ruler, because he really wants to get to his heart, why don't you go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor? And what did the rich young ruler do? He left sad. He couldn't reconcile that in his heart. And Jesus was showing to him he had, by use of a, a request, he had an issue with one of the moral, his God's moral codes, coveting. Paul is saying by just using the sin of coveting that we all have the issue of internal sin that will in time demonstrate itself externally. That's the purpose for sin. Really, folks, as one author put it, that's the ministry of the law in our lives. Aren't you thankful for the law? It's not sinful. But aren't you thankful someone showed you that you were? For those that have never known the law of Moses, God's given us his law in our conscience. God's given us the understanding to know that murdering is wrong and that stealing is wrong. That's why robbers never stay around for the police after they rob. Right? It's instinctually in us to run because we did wrong. That's why I never stole cookies out of the, my mom's cookie jar growing up without my head going like this. Who taught me to do that? My conscience taught me. And pain, pain inflicted taught me <laughs> if I didn't listen. So but God gives us the law of conscience for sure. The law is like the mirror my mom put me in when I was a little boy to show me how muddy I really was after playing in the puddle in the backfield. Don't play in that puddle. You get really muddy. A boy never thinks he's that muddy. 
So I can remember her, I can remember coming in the house, her taking me, putting me in front of a mirror from the top of my head to the bottom of my foot. I was a dark individual. I was coated with mud. And when I opened my eyes, the only white part of me was my, and I could see. See, Tim? See? The, the law is like that mirror. God uses that to expose our flaws and our disobediences. Hebrews 4.12, certainly the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and it is, it is the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the law identifies sin. It excites sin, verses eight and nine. Think about that in relationship to Philippians chapter three when Paul calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisee. The more Paul knew memorized, meditated, and enacted the law, the more sinful he became, even, think about this, even to the point of murder. Justified murder of Christians. So Paul's speaking from some pretty intimate personal experience, isn't he? What he thought was righteous was actually deadly. Thank the Lord in Acts chapter 9, he came to the realization of the purpose for the law with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ for sure. The law excites sin. It shows us that we are only going to become worse and worse the more we adhere to religious standard and rule books. Merely to discern our spiritual condition and our growth. Verses 10 and 11, Paul's very clear, it kills. As a matter of fact, if you want to cross-reference here, Galatians 3.21 as we close, Paul says in Galatians 3.21, for if there had been a law given which had given life, verily righteousness should have been achieved by the law. <laughs> if there was a law that gave life, let's live by it. But there wasn't, it all kills. It brings death. And this is why our hearts grieve and why some of us rejoice. I've grown up in religious contexts where we were taught gaining favor with God was merely through adhering to religious standards and good works. And the more we did that, the more we did that, the farther we realized we were from God, farther and farther and farther and farther. And the emptiness was only deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. The law was doing its job. Okay? The law was doing its job. Okay? And it reveals the sinfulness of sin. Even though verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good, it shows us that verse 13, the last two words, that we are utterly sinful. The depravity is great, it's apparent, but the law must minister to unto us to point us to Jesus Christ. Amen. Right. I mean, think about teachers who are here that, are, that stand before their students on the first day of school and they talk about how tight they're gonna run the school classroom. Rookie school teachers are taught that out of school, right? I've heard that over and over and over. You're coming out of student teaching and you're going into the classroom for the first time or you're a veteran teacher on the first day of school, what do you do? You lay down the law. 
this is the way the classroom's gonna be run, this is how it's gonna function, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not decrying that at all. But for those of you who have the opportunity to minister in parochial environments, particularly Christian schools, wouldn't it be wonderful to stand up before your students and say this? You know, here's a rule book, here's a set of standards, we may even have you sign that today, but can I tell you the purpose for that rule book? I promise you that this teacher is never gonna evaluate your spiritual growth by how well you succeed in obeying that standard and that rule book. I promise you I will never do that. I will never even use this rule book to determine whether you're saved or not. All this is is a set of standards to help me keep control in this classroom so you can know reading, writing, and arithmetic. But you know what? It may give me the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better in your spiritual condition, because guess what? You're gonna see Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so make some mistakes this year as your teacher. And I want you to pray for me. And I want you to know, as your teacher, when I see you make mistakes, I'm gonna pray for you. And how about we come together to really understand who Jesus is and how to grow? Isn't that a cool approach? Right? You're not throwing the rule book out. God wants order. But it can't save us and it cannot grow us and we cannot evaluate each other's growth by it. We must know each other, love each other, shepherd each other, and nurse each other unto Christ-likeness, okay? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to look into the, 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 the authority, the position, and the purpose of the law in our lives this morning. Whatever has been heard today from your word, I, I trust, Lord, has been properly explained and applied. And I, I trust, Lord, we'll be able to leave rejoicing in our hearts that we live under the law of Christ, which is all of grace. All of grace. Endless, free-flowing, eternal grace of which there is no limit. As believers, help us always to breathe much easier understanding that reality and help us to avoid seeking to grow ourselves or each other by mere influence of the law. In Jesus' name, amen.